Hello, my friends, and welcome to another edition of All My Friends with Justin Flaskrude. I hope you're in a good place both physically and mentally while listening to this podcast. As you know, I took last week off. There wasn't a new podcast. This is the newest one in like two weeks. You know, it took some time to work on myself, work on life. Actually working on myself because I have tendonitis in my wrist. And through a bunch of different trial and errors, I thought it was arthritis. I thought it was carpal tunnel. I thought it was a pinched nerve in my neck. But it was causing major pain uh, from my neck uh, all the way down my left arm. And once I figured out through research online, I actually showed the exact, like a picture of where it was hurting the most and where it was uh, actually inflamed the most on my wrist. And so I started wearing compression stuff and icing everything and taking uh, actually some arthritis medicine uh, that's good for swelling. And things seem to be on the up and up. I feel like I'm getting a whole lot better. I do exercises as well. Uh, I also want to figure out how to prevent uh, my tendonitis from acting up. So if you have any ideas, uh, let me know via social media, text me or anything like that. But it's pretty interesting during the interview. I have a, com- a compression sleeve, so I look like a basketball player kind of when I wear that. Now, right now, I'm wearing a compression um, wristband, so it doesn't look as over the top. But they both relieved a lot of issues. It's so crazy that compression helps uh, heal injuries. That's pretty interesting. And I did a lot of icing, and I'm learning a lot of exercises to help with this tendonitis. And so if you have anything that can help me out, or if this is helping you out, just let me know via social media, DJ Root Entertainment on Facebook, my Facebook page, you know, Justin Flash. You can text me as well. I got the Twitter. I got the Instagram. I have Snapchat. So uh, hit me up on social media if you have any uh, uh, remedies to curing a tendonitis of the wrist. All right, today's guest is uh, Jeff Gartman. It's been a long time since we last caught up. You know, I see his stuff on Facebook. I'm sure he sees mine. And so we are less likely to email or text or even call these days. So it took a podcast to catch up. Now, Jeff, he's on the East Coast. And well, I'm here in middle America in Wyoming. So he had some internet audio issues. I had to do some editing of the, of the actual uh, interview itself. And so hopefully it's not too distracting from the interview. But since then, I've changed the internet provider in my house. So it's a whole lot better right now. I'm loving it. So I hope to avoid those kind of issues on my end. Enjoy the interview. I was born and raised in Chesapeake, Virginia. That's uh, down in the southeastern part of Virginia. People don't usually know where that is, so I say Norfolk or Virginia Beach because most people know where Virginia Beach is. So, yeah, down in the bottom right corner of Virginia. That's where I was born and raised. And did your, were your parents from that area? Did they meet there? Did they meet somewhere else and be like, this is where we're going to raise the family? How did they meet? How did they create Jeff? <laughs> uh, let's see. They, they were both born and raised in that general area, not too far away um, from my mom. Um, how did they meet? I, a friend of my dad's in college uh, knew a friend of my mom's and they sort of got together that way. Um, and 
Yeah, I mean, it was typical sort of suburban, uh, early 70s. I'm 46, so I was born in 73. So, you know, the house, the dog, the divorce. So, you know, typical for our generation. Yes, yes. My parents met at a college in Washington, and they're divorced now. I have two step parents and everything. And yeah, we, the typical house. Uh, I think they made it till I was about six, and then the divorce happened. Um, but did I you have siblings? You. Oh, sorry. Did you have. You froze uh, for a second. Yeah, we're good. Okay. We're good. Um, yeah, we're good. Folks, we're doing this all via Zoom, as you know. So every once in a while, the internet does freeze up from time to time. Jeff's out. Yeah. Are you in Virginia still? Is that correct? No, I'm in Delaware. Delaware, now. yes. We'll get to no that. No one point. knows where Delaware is. So if you picture New Jersey and Virginia, Delaware is like right in between on the coast. You know, people, people visualize not like 95 and they go in their brains, they go New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, and they forget that Delaware is sort of tucked over there uh, in, the, in the corner um, or to the side. So. Yeah, I've uh, I've moved around quite a bit. Uh, went from the suburbs in Virginia to the mountains in Virginia, where I was lived in a college town, and then where we knew each other from Long Island, New York. Of course, that's uh, densely populated. And now I'm in the middle. Uh, I'm literally looking at a cornfield right now. I'm sitting on my porch. I got a cornfield across the street. So, um, so yeah, a lot of different areas that I've lived in. So. Were you an only child growing up? How do you fit in the mix if you got siblings? Where, where are you at in that one? I, I have an older sister. She's four years older than me. And uh, she's actually living a, around the corner with my mom right now because um, my mom is, she's sick right now. So my sister moved up here from North Carolina to, to, uh, to help take care of my mom who lives in my neighborhood. And this is the first time that I've lived that I've been around my sister this much in 30 years. Wow. And um, my sister's, uh, she's, uh, she's an eccentric. She's, um, she is, uh, she's nuts. I was trying to figure out a nice way to say it. But um, so yeah, it's, it's been a weird experience lately having to kind of go back into uh, being a brother, being a younger brother and dealing with the, the good side and the, you know, difficulties of, uh, you know, just getting along with, uh, with my sister. So, but, you know, I think that's pretty normal. Um, uh, I think so. Oh, yeah, I have a, a sibling that's old, six years older than me. She is my older sister. And you pro I lived in the shadow for a good chunk of my life, probably till I moved to Wyoming. And because I was, a, her name's Rochelle, and I was always Rochelle's little brother. Right. Never Justin, never Rude, never, I was little brother. And I think she went out to college and a year or two after that, we moved to Wyoming and nobody knew her in Wyoming. So I got out of that shadow, but I still held all the, um, well, I was a middle child too, all the middle child, second child, older sibling excels. She was a great student. She's a pretty good athlete. So I became the better athlete. I wasn't a great student. I wasn't following <laughs> that one. Um, and so it was, it was difficult. She was the original root. Uh, we had a coach that uh, was a track coach that called her rude. And then I came along later and played football for him and he called me rude. And that was in Oregon. And then it dropped after I moved to Wyoming and another friend picked it up. It's pretty easy. Last name, Flask Rude. You're just like, uh, and now you're going to be rude. Yeah, you just yeah. short that <laughs> one down. And so did you live up in that same kind of shadow? Did your sister kind of set the precedence for 
for what people expected out of you, like a lot of- Well, my sister got in trouble a lot, you know, so, um, so it, it, I, I sound terrible, but she set sort of a low bar for oh, me. Okay. Uh, just, I'm just talking like in behavior, yeah. behavior wise, because, uh, you know, she was a bit of a wild child. Uh, when my parents got divorced, I don't even remember my parents being together, whereas my sister was like seven. So it was crushing for her. I feel like I'm in therapy. Uh, it was really bad on her. And that had that stuck with her really for the rest of her life. But definitely throughout childhood and her teenage years, a lot of rebellion, a lot of anger. Um, so, you know, so when I would go to she was four years older. So when I went to high school, uh, I think a lot of teachers were kind of weary, like, what am I, what am I going to be like? So and I, you know, um, I was better at getting away with stuff than my sister. So I flew under the radar and uh, so I wouldn't really call it living in her shadow, but it was definitely a lot of comparison. I think um, me being a teacher, I know how that is when you get a younger sibling, it's, it's impossible not to sort of compare, uh, you know, the younger child with the older sibling. Yes. So, but you had the chance to rewrite, you could be a better, like she was gotten to trouble. Well, yeah, you covered it up, but, you hit it better. You learn from her, her mistakes. That's what I was, you learn yeah. from her mistakes, how to get away with things or you just <laughs> yeah. didn't do them. You just were like, eh, maybe I won't go that route this time. You know, my sister got it. was mostly the first, mostly the first thing. And I learned how to get away with him. Did she give you tips yeah. like how to do things? Or she like, um, well, I tell you what she, um, she did, uh, she partied a lot. So she sort of, you know, uh, mentored me in yeah. that direction but um but you know so I had a little bit of that wild streak in me as well when I was young but uh I got it out of my system for the most part and you know like I said before I was able to get through it uh uh, uh still smelling like roses I guess <laughs> so uh, growing up were you um besides under your sister's a tutelage, I guess, to get away with things. Were you a good student? Were you into activities? You play sports? Like, what'd you do as a kid? Um, I was an okay student in high school, um, 3.0, so just barely. Um, that was, you know, my, my dad expected good grades, so I lived up to that, you know. Um, I consider B average to be, to be a good student, but not a great student. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't play any sports or anything like that. I sort of went into a rebellion in high school as well. So, uh, you know, I was sort of anti-jock, you know, I was too cool for that. I was hanging out with kids that were, you know, um, you know, sort of on the fringe um, uh, as far as, like I said before, some, some behavior issues there. But, um, you know, the kind of leather jacket wearing, Metallica t-shirt, uh, you know, thinking we're cooler than everybody else, that sort of thing. So no, no sports, no sports for me. I probably could have gone that route, um, but I moved to Wyoming from a bigger populated area in Portland and was like, sports is going to be my only way out of this place. And so I became, I was all about it. I didn't party in high school. I didn't have, I didn't go to parties. I didn't hang out with those people. Um, I was all straight up just, got to do sports to get out of this place and so I had quite a different experience but I know probably if I'd have stayed in Oregon it might have gone a different way um, definitely it was still involved with sports but there was a lot more trouble to get into there 
For sure. And my sister set the groundwork because she got into it her fair share, but she was a really good student. And so she was like, yeah, don't get caught. That was kind of her parting words and uh, off to college before <laughs> I, you know, grew up. And I was like, wow, okay. Um, it all changed when I moved to Laramie because it was just, I rebellion at first. I hated it and wanted to rebel and hung out with the bad kids. And then realized that probably wasn't the best route and then locked it down and became all about sports and thought, oh, it's going to be my only ticket out of here. And then went to University of Wyoming, which is in the same town as my high school. So it didn't really quite pan out that way, but uh, I had a lot of fun doing all those activities growing up. So go in high school, I kind of remember some stories about, I don't know if it was high school, maybe your college career. When did you get into skydiving? That was always something that stuck in my head. That was in college. Yeah, that was in college. Um, when I graduated high school, I went to a community college for three okay. years. I know you're supposed to do it for two, but, you know, uh, I did three. And then I transferred to Virginia Tech. And, yeah, that's where skydiving came in. Um, I guess that was sort of the evolution of my of my sort of reckless youth, my uh, wild days. But, yeah, I, was, uh, I did skydiving for about two years or so. I think I've got around 45 jumps or something like that. Um, that was a lot of fun. It was expensive. Um, and, you know, I look back at it and it's just kind of, I don't know, it's kind of crazy. I, I couldn't, I don't think I could do it now. Um, I don't know. I, 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 right now I've got kids and I know how safe it is. I know it's statistically safer than, uh, than driving on the highway, but I don't know. I just don't think I could do it right now. Um, I, I wouldn't want my kids to grow up like saying, yeah, my dad died skydiving. You know, I, I, uh, I don't think I could, uh, well, I was going to say, I don't think I could live with that, but obviously I'd be dead. But um, yeah, skydiving was a lot of fun back in, back in college. I did that when I went to Virginia tech and um, that is speaking of, you know, good grades and locking it down. I locked it down in college and, um, and really focused on doing well in school. Um, I mean, I still had my partying. I still had uh, my wild streak, but, um, but yeah, that it became a lot more important to me in college to do well. Uh, I graduated with a 3.78. So um, yeah, I took it a lot more seriously, but so yeah. So at, at a high school, I mean, you're getting what you 3.0, yeah, but the crazy side was, you know, there still was was yeah. community college a choice right away? Were you looking at other places? Was college even an idea? Some people are like, whatever, but then they get inspired and you ended up at a community college. Was it a local community college? Yeah, local community college. It, there wasn't there's no inspirational story here. Yeah. My dad expected me to go to school. I was it, there was never a thought in my mind that I wouldn't go to college. It was just an. Mm. Oh, I froze up for a little bit. About anything else. Um, you froze up. It, Sorry for it, that. Might uh, be and um, go, my dad wanted me to go to community college to, to save some money, but also to figure out what I wanted to do. And at that point in my life, if I could go to community college, I knew it would be relatively easy uh, and, and, Basically, I just wanted to have a part-time job, go to school, keep my dad off my back, keep my mom off my back, and be able to still go out and, you know, and party and live it up and, 
without anybody having a lot of high expectations. So it's not an inspirational part of my life at all. I was just coasting, no, no direction, no goals or aspirations other than going out on the weekend. And, you know, I'm not really proud of that, but that's just, that's a phase of my life that, that I had to go through. And, um, and I got into the school newspaper uh, at the community college and I kind of liked the whole being part of uh, media and um, so I wanted to be a writer. And then when I transferred to Virginia Tech, uh, which is also where my dad went to school. So, um, so that, that was attractive to him. It was attractive to me. And, um, and so I was able to convince him to help me out going to Virginia Tech. And then there's when I got interested in television. They had, um, a, they had classes in TV, TV production and a student television station. That's where I got into that which is eventually how I met you because we both worked in television a few years after that. Yeah. I don't think uh, there's not too many people I know and that TV was their first mate. Like they weren't in, they didn't, I didn't go to college just to be in TV. Like there's not many people I know that did that. Me, I thought I was going to be marketing or teaching or something. Like my family's a lot of teachers. Um, I did marketing out through high school. So I was like, all right, this seems like the path, but my stepdad, was a major instructor person in UWTV. And so my senior year, he's like, I'll pay you 50 bucks a game to carry equipment for the local stations while they shoot video for the highlights for the coaches show. That's and cool. so, yeah, like back when you had like a lot of equipment to carry just now it's really simple, but, and so I carried a deck for the local guy and I was, it was kind oh, of fun. Yeah, it was old school. I was fun because I would play Friday night and I was a lineman and never got any press, rolled into our football stadium, the university, and I would have my own press conferences basically with the local media or the media that was like, because we were a good team, our high school team was. So I'd get a, basically my own press conferences for a little bit and then I'd go to work carrying equipment and stuff. And I worked on the actual coach so well. And then I got to college and my stepdad was like, Oh, just be an intern for me. More working with TV. Da, da, da. Next thing I know, I'm a major in it. And but I started incredibly early for a lot of people. Like I started my freshman year getting into classes. Normal people are junior and seniors by the time they are touching right. equipment like I was into. So by the time I was in my later, you know, years of college, I was really, really good at what I did. At least I thought I was until I got to New York. Then I was just another <laughs> dog. Then I was just another guy shooting murder scenes. You know, I was just instead of like the guy i was just another guy but that's totally a different story and get into later once we get to news 12 and so you're at virginia tech and now do they have a tv station and you declared i'm going to be a broadcasting major what was the major called there communications uh and the umbrella um, degree was in communications but then you could specialize in television or film or uh, I think uh, public relations, marketing, I can't remember what the other ones were, but um, I got into television. I, I, I wanted to go into film at first and, uh, you know, I kind of wish I would have done that and then maybe just thrown my hat in the ring, gone to LA, see what that was like. But I know that, you know, it's so hard to get into the entertainment industry, to get into, you know, into film and, uh, especially being some rube from Virginia, uh, not knowing anybody, because I know that's such a big part of, um, of getting into the industry is knowing somebody. So 
I decided I, I did love television. I liked the classes. I liked the technology and editing and that sort of thing. So um, I figured there's more jobs that direction. So uh, so that's where that major came from. And then so I graduated in 96 with that degree. And then I got a job at a tiny, tiny station in Blacksburg, a public access station, the kind of station that uh, airs the town council meetings, you know, every Tuesday night. You know, I covered those. Uh, so, but it was a cool job because there was only three of us that worked there. And so we had to learn how to do everything in front of the camera, behind the camera, from, you know, editing and, and shooting to, to running cables and setting up, uh, setting up uh, switch camera feeds for the town council meeting and stuff like that. So I really got a lot of experience in how to do every uh, facet of television production. And around that time, I met my wife or my, you know, my wife to be at that point. Um, and she was from Long Island. So uh, I dated her for a year. The first year I was out of college working at that station. And then she went back to New York and we kept dating long distance for that following year. The second year I was at out of college, second year at that small TV station. After that, um, we were still, you know, we were still doing well. You know, I didn't know how it was going to be long distance. It worked out. So I moved on up to New York. I figured there's a lot more opportunity for television in New York than there is in Virginia. And of course, there's this uh, woman that I was in love with. And so I moved up there. We moved in together. And, uh, and that's where I got the job at News 12 Long Island as an editor. And that's where uh, I met you. When, what year? I went to uh, News 12 in 98. When did you show up? 99, I think. Okay. If not 2000, I think. I moved, I actually laid down roots in New York in 99, but I've been going there uh, since like 96, working at a camp. And I had met my ex-wife now uh, oh. at uh, the camp. And we made, she was from England and we made New York kind of was the center, like between Wyoming and, and England, right. kind of middle ground. And we knew people and I was like, well, he can make it there. He can make it any, you know, kind of like, all right, and you talked about who you knew. Um, none of my resumes, none of anything found its way to any station until my dad, who's a teacher in Oregon, knew somebody in the Rainbow Media Network. And they got okay. my resume to Mark Ambrico, name drop right there. And <laughs> uh, next thing I know, I'm getting the call. And I started off as an editor as you, and then I worked into camera work after a while. And... Uh, yeah, that was, it wasn't my dream to be an editor. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it was, it was yeah. weird at first. And especially like, I always say news always, it grinds you down. Yeah. Uh, unless you have the right personality, which I didn't after a while. It was just like, uh, another murder I got to go follow. Great. You know, when I was used to shooting sports nonstop here at the University of Wyoming, that was where I got my my feel for camera work and everything and learning how to shoot news stories quickly. And you learned this one. Oh, you did that in three minutes next time too. And you're like, yeah, great. <laughs> that sounds easy. Um, right. yeah. And so like meeting, yeah. And then meeting, I always felt I, that we can't, didn't grow up in New York and like everyone at that station did. So we kind of have a, this different perspective. I called it outside perspective that the stuff they said and did sometimes, would just floor me i'm sure you too yeah and, and I bet, was, I, you go ahead sorry 
uh, moving to New York was weird because it was the first time in my life that I had been treated any differently. Right. And it wasn't necessarily that it was treated uh, negatively. It was, you know, I was seen as like a hillbilly, you know, which was, I had always lived in Virginia. So, you know, I went from the suburbs to a college town. Um, and, you know, I knew I was a Southerner, but, you know, when I moved to New York, now I just stood out as, yeah. uh, you know, and I remember um, Jeff Richardson, who was like straight up Long Island. After yeah. a couple of weeks, I said something about being from Virginia and he was like, oh, is that, is that why you talk so weird? And I just <laughs> remember the irony, the irony of that moment. He, he had no idea how weird he sounded to me. Uh, but um, but it wasn't a bad experience. It was just fish out of water. You know, I just uh, and it was tough at first because a lot of people did kind of hear my accent, which it's kind of, my accent's kind of gone away. I had more of a southern accent back then. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and they would sort of kind of, you know, expect all of those Southern stereotypes to be there. But once I got to know people, it wasn't a big deal. And on the other side of that, you know, I met people from different countries, uh, that I, that I would have never met outside of New York. Plus just living in New York, someone who's Italian is Italian. Somebody who's Irish is Irish, you know, whereas in Virginia, everybody's just a mix of like everything. So, um, so it was pretty cool. Um, and I'd never, I had never known any Jewish people where I grew up. There just weren't any there. And if they were, I had no idea. Whereas in New York meeting uh, and working with so many people who were Jewish and really like learning about their cultures and, and really all of those different, uh, different, um, nationalities and people of different heritages uh, that it was really cool to be exposed to all those different types of people. And um, I really, I loved that. And I do miss that. I miss living in New York, that diversity. Yeah. I, I felt the same way. Like the moment they heard Wyoming, I was like, <laughs> and I was like, I'm technically only lived there what, uh, not even half my life yet. Um, and so they'd be like, Wyoming, and it's all sorts of, you guys have cable and electricity and all that. <laughs> yes. I live in a suburb. Yes. I have all that. I live in a college town. <laughs> I expected you, you know, I do remember people like saying things to you, like, you know, did you ride a horse to work? You know, things like that. I would, I, after a while, well, I worked at the summer camp and it was predominantly Jewish. That was my first exposure to really New York. So I got to know the Jewish culture very well. I have a lot of great friends that are Jewish and everything. And so that was definitely because there are not a lot of Jewish families in Wyoming. I'll tell you that for sure. It's just not a lot of diversity. And so New York was great for that. It kind of got back to the diversity I had in Oregon, but they'd hear that Wyoming thing and they'd be like, and then I'd get, you sound funny. And I'd be like, what? You sound funny. And I go, go <laughs> listen to the nightly news. And they'd be like, why? And I go, they all sound like me, Dan Rather, Brokaw, Kansas, like Nebraska. I was like, they all sound like me. And they did, and they, they did, and they were like, wow, they do. And I was like, you sound funny to me, <laughs> to the rest of the world. And the hardcore, the accents that came out sometimes. I think it, Mark was having a meeting with us one time talking about a downlink from California. And he said, California. That yeah. hard R came out, and I yeah. couldn't resist. I was like, where's that? He's like, you don't know where California is at? And I was like, no. Is that near California? And I just hard at that a yeah, yeah. he was like oh man not too happy the joke i made but i would call it out life, yeah it, 
out in my wife uh, in her accent every now and then she'll she'll do one of those uh, I'll mess with her because she'll say instead of drawing she'll say a drawing you know she'll slip that R in there which if she's talking about the drawer you know the thing you pull out that has forks and spoons in it she calls that a draw I'm like you've got those <laughs> words completely backwards uh, so yeah so I married a Long Island girl and uh, so I she still has a little bit of that accent every now and then comes out the one word, the phrase, I can't, if I think about it, I get it right. But if I just if talking, Long Island. If I say Long Island, I'm just talking, it comes out Long Island. Right, yeah. But when I think about it like I have now, I can get it right. But I'm always like, Long Island, I, that was the only, usually I don't pick up the accent from a place I live in that well. I know people are just instantly pick up the accents, but I was like, right. Long Island was the hard one. And then I came out of New York talking a whole lot faster. And so people were like, wait, slow down. I was like, sorry, <laughs> New Yorker in me just talks fast because they don't have time for me to talk slow with my Wyoming drawl and everything. <laughs> They're like, move it along. And so working at a news station, uh, like, what, are your, what were your, some of your most interesting, I don't know, maybe stories? Uh, I know both of us that were there for 9-11. And so that probably pushed me out the door quicker than a lot most. And uh, but. I have definitely have some stories, but what are some of the more interesting things you worked on? Oh man. Um, well, nine 11, definitely, you know, well for everybody in the world that, that day is, uh, you know, it's impossible to forget, but working in news in New York, definitely, uh, it was a, a hallmark moment in my career. Definitely. Like you, we were talking about earlier, the burnout, and uh, how it wears you down. And, you know, that experience was definitely something that, um, I mean, I still worked in TV for two years after that, but it, it started that, that burnout. It started that sort of feeling of everything that, that, that I'm covering is bad news. You know, it's, it's murders, it's car accidents, it's uh, f people's homes burning down. It's corrupt politicians. It's uh, and then the one story at the end, you know, Ken Grimball with the nice uh, kids selling ice cream to, you know, to raise money for homeless people or something. But but ninety percent of the newscast was uh, was bad. So um, you know that was hard. But I did really like the teamwork uh, that was involved behind the scenes. You know the working closely with, uh, with my coworkers in the, in editing. Um, I liked the, the, I liked the pressure and it also nearly killed me. that, um, you know, that rush of getting your video for a story three minutes before it was expected to go on the air, uh, and be able to knock that out. You know, that was a big adrenaline rush. Um, so, uh, uh, we'll get to this in a minute, but I'm a teacher. And so I have a lot of former students that, that work in news and sometimes they'll be telling me the stories and I'm like, man, I think I would kind of like to have a week back in the station just to, you know, uh, relive those moments. But, uh, but I think that would be enough. Um, uh, I only miss it a little bit. Um, you know, I, it was a part of my life and it was five years of my life, um, working in news two years before that, at that little station I was talking about. But, um, as far as like particular moments, it's not necessarily the stories. It's really just the news stories. It's really just the uh, getting to know people like you uh, from outside of New York, getting to know the New Yorkers like Greg and Cirillo and you know, 
Maria Canizzo, Mark Racenstein, of Racenstein. course, you know, the king of the Jews, his words, not mine. I would never yes, call him that, but he called himself that. So it's, okay. I confirm, I confirm. Yeah. So, um, it's getting to know all the different personalities and being a part of that team. That was, um, that's what st stands out to me the most looking back at, uh, at my days in news. I think I blocked out a lot of the stuff that, that was really the hard stuff. You know, you, you had to be on scene. I was never a photog. I was never out of the studio. So I never had to go and be where there was a car accident or where someone was, was murdered. But even just being on the receiving end of that, having the video coming in and having to sit there and make it detach myself from the story that I was working on, which was awful and having to just do my job and, and then just, and then turn around and go on dinner break. Like it, you know, here I am watching the worst moment in somebody's life. And for me, it's just another night. And that, you know, it, it, it did, I felt like I was losing a part of my soul, which is part of the reason that I felt like I had to move on with my life and do something different. I just, I could not see making bad news every day of my life for, for, you know, until I retired. I just, I couldn't do that. Couldn't do it. I hear you. We actually, today we're watching a movie called Spotlight and it's about the uncovered, the Boston Herald Globe, something like that, revealed uh, child molestations through the Catholic church. And it was 2001 that this was all going down and they had 9-11 in the middle of it and then they released everything. And next thing I know, I'm being flown on a plane to Boston to cover what the archdiocese going to court, which we never saw in the light of day. But watching that movie today brought up memories of doing the job. Uh, I was like, wow, this is all coming back to me. And it did. I mean, there were other circumstances that made me leave New York, but a lot of it was after a while realizing I was not happy working in news. Now, if you would have gave me a chance to cover sports all the time, maybe that would have been a different story, but that wasn't the case. And so, yeah, I was on site. I tracked down I was on the murderer really close to finding him. And I was like, what do we do if we catch him? We're <laughs> not the police or anything. Like people wow. knew that we were close. And I was like, man, we got a live shot. We should probably like wrap it up trying to find this guy right now. But like we'd go into stores and they were like, uh, yeah, I haven't seen him in a while. They had seen him just probably minutes ago. So that was interesting. Um, that, and, just yeah different parts and pieces come back from when i worked there one of my favorite one is i worked in the jet locker room a few times and i went to cover sports and herman edwards remembered me from one time to the next which was weeks weeks nice we got introduced through you know sports people and then i came in later and he's like hey man how you doing and he knew my name like coaches like that i'm like oh how do you do this but he knew it and he was in it he engaged and so every time I see him, I'm like, that's, that guy's awesome. Like Herm Edwards is a good coach, good guy. And at the time we were there, he went into the St. John's locker room, gave them a pep talk, and they beat Duke, was ranked like number four at the time. St. John's was nothing. But I was like, that guy could get you motivated to play or do any your job or anything like that. He's just good at what he does. So that was probably one of my favorite moments in there. Were you to be at were you lucky enough to be at the press conference when he did the, you play to win the game? I wish. 
No, but it was hot topic later. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I wasn't. Um, and then just going in, like being the fan, the super fan that I am of sports and stuff, I was in their locker room a lot and learning the insights. Like you don't talk to certain players over there because they just can't talk. And I was like, oh, they're so good though. And they're just not good on the mic. They're really good athlete, but they just can't express how good they are on the mic. And I was like, I got it. Or kind of a sad note, but yet just a memorable spot. I was on in the dugout right when after 9-11 and the first game was being played between the Mets and the Braves. And Virginia Huey and I, another name I just kind of remembered right away. Uh, we're excited that story and we're in the Braves dugout and there's Glavin and there's all these guys in the Braves. I really hate, but really respect it. Yeah. In an arm's length away. And I want to geek out as a fan and everything, but I know we're there for something different. And they brought a huge flag. It was very emotional, but I was just like, wow, I would have never had this opportunity if I didn't work in news or right. go to New York and New York, those opportunities. I got to see so many concerts I miss a lot of that. Some of my friends are still out there and stuff. Luckily, I always tell people to move away. I was like, <laughs> living on top of that many people is not fun. Unless you got money. But I was like, yeah. wide open spaces. You have a cornfield. I have some fields behind my house. Like, does a lot for your soul. And not working in news does a lot for your soul. And all those people that still do, more power to you. But it wasn't for us, as we, we see. And now we work in education, which is right. fantastic, I think. Cause I wake up every day going, first of all, no one's probably going to die on my right. watch or I got to cover anything. And at the end of result is people are getting smarter and educated and we're sending them out in the world to do good things. We hope. And I just provide the sport for that. You actually do the instruction. So that's cool. Um, but we needed that. I think I needed that time at news 12 to, it made me a, a actually a more efficient worker. I thought. Oh yeah. Definitely for me the speed you had to work at, you know, uh, like I said before, it's a rush, but it also did teach, um, I don't know if time management is the right, but right term, but working hard under pressure and, and, uh, and having to, um, push yourself to, you had to get it right. You had to get it right. And you had to get it right with seconds, uh, to go. So, um, yeah, that, that was definitely a valuable experience. And, uh, yeah, I cherish those years. Um, I'm glad that it was only five years because like I said before, I couldn't have done 20, 30, uh, but they were great. It was a great experience and great years. I look fondly back at those years, but, uh, but I'm glad that it's back, that it's, that it's something that I've moved up on from. So, um, education has been, I guess I'll just, can I just segue? I'll segue. Well, right I was going to go back to some of the stuff, things we did to uh, probably break up the, the craziness, fantasy sports. I've yeah. never been a part of so many fantasy sports. <laughs> I play fantasy football right now and maybe like pick them in, in uh, basketball and bowl games. But I was like, otherwise, because I had so many sports. And the other day, found one of my uh, helmets that you made from back in the day. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it sits in my garage. I should have I should have brought it up here, but I was like, "Where did this come from? Why is it here? Like, why is it in the garage? Like, not somewhere else?" I was like, "This is interesting." Um, folks, was it um, the Lar Was it the Laramie uh, Rednecks or the Wyoming Rednecks or something like that? Helmets? 
I remember you had one with a guy who was like in the Patriots stance. Yeah. He had like a John Deere. Uh, but um, I do believe it's a rock. If anybody's watching this, they wouldn't know what we're talking about. Here's what we're talking about. Fantasy football, everybody that works, uh, or not everybody, but, you know, a group of people that worked in the station, teams, baseball, football, whatever. And, uh, and just because I'm a weirdo, I would make all of the helmets or the hats with the logos and, um, you know, and we'd have them laminated up on the wall, like standings on the, on the wall there, uh, first place, second place record and all that. So, um, that's cool. You still have a helmet. That's awesome. I, I think it was the, some with the rocks emblem on it for sure. Hey, outside. See here in Wyoming, we get noise too. Uh, it was like, yeah, the rock emblem. I should have grabbed it earlier. Maybe I'll grab it after the interview. My my weird talent is that I can tell you any World Series matchup since 1967. I don't know why that is stuck on in my brain, but uh, yeah, give me give me any year since 67. Uh, we'll go 74. Here we were. I was born. 74 was the uh, third straight of the A's won three in a row and 74 would have been A's over the Dodgers. Wow. 73 was A's over Mets. 72 was A's over Reds. So, uh, go ahead. Give me another one. Yeah. Okay. Um, 82. 82 Cardinals over Brewers. That was back when the Brewers were in the American league. Uh, but see, any, anybody listening now without video, they're like, oh, okay, this guy's just looking at a list. But, yeah. uh, but anyway. If, if the audio got garbled and you guys didn't hear it well enough, um, we would have master tapes and they had uh, a number assigned to them. And I don't know, it probably started at zero at one point. But we eventually got to the 1950s, 1960s in the numbers. Oh. And that's where you would be like, oh, my master tape, I'm starting in 1973. And you just rattle off, or I'm adding to this. And I just hear, you know, Brewers, like, and I'm here, oh, okay. And I don't know, yeah. baseball is probably the sport I follow the least, but I actually knew World Series after a while because I'd hear the nub, I'd be like, oh, yeah. And so it was good. Um, it was that's nice. Cool. Baseball in that's New York. Great. Remember that. Yeah. Some people say I have a good memory. I don't know. I just, I give me the tidbits. I probably could figure it out. Um, but also say I have a good memory because I don't have kids. I was like, because a lot of people have kids that those memories get eaten up by your kids. <laughs> That's so true. I was like, well, I don't. So I remember for you, like my buddy's got three kids and he's always like, rude. What's that about that one time? And he gives me a tidbit and I'm like, I could just nail it off. And I'm like, I don't know. Cause I've drank a lot in my life. I've partied a lot in my life. I've done a lot of things that would totally destroy my memory, but it exists short term, sketchy, long term. If you get it there, we're good to go for a long time. Like remembering the uh, baseball numbers, remembering uh, skydiving, that part of your life, um, that, that kind of stuff, you know, comes out. I mean, like, I'm surprised I don't remember more uh, Mark racing scene stories. I know <laughs> we sat around and watched Fox news, uh, the Riley factor when we were working together a lot more than I like to admit to. Um, <laughs> but it was the beginning of O'Reilly and he wasn't, I don't think had quite the agenda. It was more of common man talk. I remember that. Yeah. So, but that race, racing scene got me watching that for initially that stuff. I remember and, uh, Drudge report. He was a big Drudge report guy. Yeah. And yeah. Stuff about, yeah. 
That was always good. I wonder, is he still working there? I don't have any connections to News 12 anymore. I, I don't think he is. Uh, or maybe I'm thinking of Strandfeld. I know he's not there anymore, okay. but I, I can't, I'm not sure. I, I can't remember. And I see Mark's a huge cat guy. So on. See him uh, on Facebook, Facebook, cats and dogs. Yeah. Cause I have cats too. So we kind of get into your conversations about cats. Say no kids have cats. Oh, this right here too. It's not a tat. I have a compression sleeve on. I have a tendonitis. And so I can, there's a glove you can wear and it's just too cumbersome. So I feel like a sports athlete wearing the whole compression thing. And so <laughs> it feels good. I couldn't figure out what was bothering so much. thought it was carpal tunnel, thought it was all these other things and it's tendonitis and my, and I'm left-handed. So I kind of, it's like, you got to rest yourself. So if you have people at home, I'm wearing like a compression sleeve, by the way, if you can't, you don't see the video, but it's, uh, we're yeah, getting we're old. We're getting yeah. old. That's what, you know, we're I know where I can go to bed and wake up and be like, I hurt my neck. I don't, yeah. I don't know how, but I did. It is an interesting, you know, I, yeah. I'll get on these athletes, you know, when, uh, you know, they'll, taking too long to come back from a dislocated shoulder or whatever. And I'm getting mad at them. Meanwhile, if I sleep wrong, you know, if I sleep on a different pillow, I'm whining about my neck for two weeks. So uh, yeah, I'm completely hypocritical in that. Well, we don't have access to their trainers. There you go. I had a trainer to work on this. It would have been done weeks ago (laughs) and your neck too. And and I'll also say that uh, it doesn't help that I'm in terrible shape. So, you know, yeah, I interesting. I mean, since New York, I've done more to get in better shape. I've ran like two warrior dashes, five Ks, stuff I just didn't ever see happening in my life. Uh, but I did them, uh, and it's uh, and it's a lot of that. Well, just to test yourself, and I'll, I don't know if I'll ever run them again. But it helped um, getting out of shape. <laughs> not, I mean, getting in better shape now in my life. I weigh less than I did in high school, which is nice, but not quite the athlete that I was then. Ability's uh, built a little bit more differently now. I can't quite bench press a car like I used to in high school. I was super strong, but now if, I don't want to be big and I don't want to be huge. I want to be smaller and use my head, my brain more than my body. Pay people to do that heavy stuff. Like, <laughs> that's what I think about. Like, I don't need to be a big guy. That's cool. And staying in reasonable shape is okay. And so and it's I have okay. three kids. So, you know, having three kids, I'm moving around enough where, where, uh, you know, I get enough exercise, uh, with that. So, and what, my when, what are their age ranges? Your kids? Uh, my son's birthday. He just turned 16. My oldest son uh, just turned 16. My daughter is 14 and my youngest son is 12. So uh, they're, they're a little more independent than they were a few years ago, but I'm still going to use the, uh, the kids uh, get me exercise excuse while, uh, while I still can. But um, you know, I can't believe how old they get because time really, you know, people say that about their kids all the time. They grow up so quick and, uh, but it really did feel like they went from being toddlers to, you know, my son's driving and, uh, you know, my daughter's going into high school. So 
it's just crazy, man. Having kids is just a wild experience. Uh, it's a whole new life. It's like everything about your life changes. And, uh, and I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but, um, yeah, I, sometimes I, I do think about, uh, what did I do with all my time back before I had kids, you know, uh, a lot of fun stuff. Cause I'm still doing it. Yeah. <laughs> my right. wife and over New Year's, we went away skiing, just the two of us. And we were, uh, we got a be an um, Airbnb for two nights. And so that middle day, we woke up in the Airbnb, went to bed in the Airbnb. That was the first full 24 hours from waking up to going to sleep without kids ever since the day my oldest was born. Holy that was the first time that we had been without the kids for a full day. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't happen enough. Uh, so, and not that I'm complaining about having kids, but, um, you know, I, I do miss, uh, I do miss some of that freedom. I'll say that. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, well, probably my biggest deterrent of not is I have a younger sister who's 11 years younger than me. So I became built in babysitter built in took raised her i was like the third parent um for a lot of her life she and it's still we almost have this that kind of relationship now that i'm i'm more of a mentor than an older brother like a brother that's close in age um we could probably get along really well still because she's a niner fan that's good um i got her rolling on that boat when she was born <laughs> and so uh the super bowl yeah i don't know Everyone asked me about the fourth quarter, and I'm like, I blacked out. I don't know what happened. <laughs> it was there, and then it wasn't. And so, um, yeah, I, I, that was probably my, my mom always says that was probably the biggest deterrent why I didn't have kids. And then I kept dating like women in my life that were not really about kids. And, I, and then I became a selfish person. And my current relationship, she's like, I don't want kids at all. And I'm like, I made it this far. I'm cool with that. And so, I mean, she has nephews and niece and I do too. And we spoil them like we do, but then we go home and our house is quiet. <laughs> and quiet. Clean. Yes. Yes. Clean. When her family comes to stay, it's two other adults and four kids. I kind of, I clean the house. I'm that guy. I'm a very like tight ship, clean the house, stuff like that. And it's just chaos. And uh, and when they leave, it is just, I love them being here. I have a fun time, but the whole time I'm cleaning up, moving stuff, like it's chaos to me. And so it's just crazy, but uh, they're getting older too. And as they, you know, as kids get older. Okay. That? My, that chaos uh, all the time, 24 uh, seven. I saw a, a meme one time that said, uh, having kids is like uh, having everything you own throwing it on the floor, cleaning it up and repeating that until you die. That's having kids right there. It sounds about right. It sounds about right. I remember it was one time they came and I was out of town and I got into my house and I was just like, Oh my God. And I think I spent like an hour cleaning my kitchen, just working around them. I just was like, I, I guess they don't, you know, when they had their fourth, I was like, why, why we had a good thing. Now it's one-on-one -on -one coverage when we're four adults are together yeah. you to have a good zone going now you had your fourth and now it's all each of us has to take a kid when we're all together and then it was they get outmanned i feel from we always like you know in this day and age zoom with them or facetime 
and we were on it earlier in the day today and yeah craziness just craziness at their house still and they're young they're all i think it's 13 and down younger all the way down to four and they're four-year-olds oh, man oh, man uh, 13 to four yeah that's yeah. uh that's yeah. a lot of yeah their youngest is is hell on wheels i call it and that's like by then i think i think parents are just like yeah whatever you're you're alive like i'm not gonna listen i'm not dealing with your stuff right now right at the time uh, you're alive that's good so it's interesting to be around them and then you know not having kids you're never used to a, a lot of that and then i have my friends kids run that come in and they're from las vegas and it's such a different set of they're they're just the most well-behaved kids i know i can't believe that they exist it's, they're just really nice and oh my gosh and you're like stop that and they're like okay I'm like, it's not how it usually works. And so, I, I mean, it's an, I, I don't know what it's like to have kids. So I'm about, like, I get the one, don't you wish you did? And I'm like, well, I'm 46, man. I don't want to be an old parent. I'm not, like, wealthy, so I could ha- hire somebody to take care of them when I'm 80. Like, I'm okay. Right. So, yeah, it's always, uh, you know, uh, I'm not those people who, who judges and says, why didn't you have kids? When are you going to have kids? Hey, the way I look at it, you run your life and do what makes you happy, and I'm gonna do the same thing. And uh, you know, I, I don't, I just don't see why the people uh, pressure uh, other people to have kids or judge them or whatever. Yeah, and I and I'm not one to judge when a kid's losing their mind at a at a grocery store. I wish I could help. I can't, but yeah, I help. you know, I'm not the one going shut your kid up. I'm like, ah, hey, whatever, happens. Yeah. I actually experienced that because my youngest son has autism. So, you know, that's something that uh, you talk about a whole new life and a game changer. Um, And and you mentioned a little while ago, you not having kids, you, you know, you don't want to know what it's like to really be immersed in it 24 seven. And it's the same thing with having a child with special needs that um, even somebody who's around people with special needs a lot when it is your full-time job it is uh it is a it's a completely different set of expectations and um and and when i say expectations i mean like what you expect to get out of life everything changes um and you know we don't know if uh if my son he might we might he might live with us for the rest of our lives and of course that's not something that we expected when we had kids but um you know, it's a, it's, it is a challenging experience. It is oftentimes a rewarding experience. It's uh, oftentimes a frustrating experience, you know, trying to figure out how to break through and uh, communicate with them and understand what's going on in his head. And, you know, wondering if he understands what's going on in the rest of the world and with us. And um, it is a completely unique experience. I had no idea what it would be like, uh, you know, he was diagnosed right before he was two and, you know, it was a shock. You know, I, I, I didn't really know much about autism other than what you see in the movies, you know, and yeah. it's nothing like, you know, and it's nothing like Rain Man. That's one in a million uh, uh, persons with autism, something like that. But um, it's been, it's been uh, the most important job of my life is raising uh my son he's 12 now and uh since he since he was born and and forever it will be the most important thing that i do every day um because 
he needs uh, he needs his mom and his dad to help him out. And his brothers and sisters are um, they're they're great with him too. But yeah, it's an experience like no others. Interesting enough, two of my best friends each have a son with autism. Different different areas in the spectrum. Right. Um, I just follow their lead kind of with how they talk with their kids. And I've developed my own uh, relationship with their sons that, and they, I mean, they think they always remember and think they love calling me rude. You know, it's always, it's always a fun line. Um, But I, I just follow the lead of my friends kind of see how they interact with their sons and go with that. And there's been little to no incidents, maybe one in the whole time, you know, I've been around them. Right. One of them came back and he apologized. Sorry. I didn't mean to get out of, I mean, it was interesting to go through that. And, but yeah, it's a big part of kids today. And I think we're realizing autism is, is probably been going on a lot longer in society than, than we know. And right. We would put, put them away. We put them in special schools when really they just needed a little more time and attention. And like you said, it's your most important job. And so that kind of stuff, which is great. And we're learning more. And so it's just not, you know, simple, your kids acting out. It's more, a little more than that. So I'm in with the way, um, you know, with, with the way that the public, um, is so understanding. I think that, that people have come a long way in the past 15 years or so, um, or you know, however long a period of time, it doesn't really matter. But people have come uh, have come a long way in their understanding. You know, um, my son doesn't really have the meltdowns in public that he used to, and there have been many times where it was just a, a disaster, where you know, he would just be completely. Uh, off the deep end and, and there's, there's almost nothing you can do. You try every strategy. Um, and I always, you know, I expected people to kind of look down their nose or why can't you control your kid and that sort of thing. And that, that happens rarely. Um, most of the times people are understanding. And, and I think that, I think that these days, you know, you mentioned that you're, that you're close to, two people that have uh, sons with autism. I, I feel like these days, most people know somebody that, uh, that has a child with autism or, or who is autistic. And, um, and so I think that people are a lot more understanding now than they were you know, 20 years ago or whatever, um, which is, uh, it's comforting. And, you know, it gives me more hope for the future that he will be able to go into society and not be treated like you were mentioning earlier um, how back in you know 40 50 years ago was absolutely horrific you know people uh would be put away and for the rest of their life you know be isolated and shunned in some hospital somewhere i mean just terrible terrible the way that uh that things were um you know, a long time ago, or really not that long ago, we're talking a generation or two. And, um, and nowadays, people are a lot more accepting, there's more employers that will that will hire uh, special needs adults, and um, gives me a lot more hope for the future. Uh, for my son. Yeah, well, like you said, well, Rain Man's that prime example. I mean, he was technically locked away. Right. Well, Tom Cruise got him out probably for the wrong reasons, but 
like that, those, that was the way it was. And now we're moving further away from that, which is great. And yeah, yeah. hope for the future. And also sometimes I notice with some, some people with autism, I'm like, they worry less about the emotion of life. Like the stuff that really jams up a lot of humans, like people. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're focused on the, the stuff that matters, the, the facts, the, the straightforward, right. stuff, which I'm like, this is kind of what we need right now. Some focus, <laughs> you know? And, and one of my friend's son, like they, they asked him to do this assignment, like imagine this and that. And he just wasn't into it. But if you're like, well, draw your house and your family, bang, got it. But that whole imagine thing, yeah, he straight facts, straight, like, what you want, he's going to give you. It was in the imagination part. He's just like, yeah, but I'm focused yeah. on these things, which I was like, we kind of need that uh, <laughs> from, a, from a portion of people right now. Cause we're got caught up in a lot of emotions and things in life that slow us down and or get us, you know, not moving forward. And I'm like, we kind of need some straightforward thinking. And a lot of autistic people come with some straightforward thinking, which is yeah. kind of good, which I'm like, maybe then that's what society may need later on. And so your son may be on, you know, the forefront of converting yeah. us to a little more straightforward <laughs> thinking instead of getting caught up in a lot of emotions and, and such that a lot of people get stuck in. And so I just I like that, that, my friends. So maybe, I, mean, I don't know if that's true with everybody that has autism or anything like that, but I noticed it with, especially with his son, I was like, yeah, you cut right to the chase. But if I asked you, imagine you're like not really into it but you're more into facts the science the numbers right. first and i'm like hey that works for me and so and i'm as an educator right now we're of course in this pandemic and your kids did you got did you have to homeschool them did, how did that work out i mean now it's summertime so but we're getting back talking about going back here soon but how did that work out when it first was going down uh, in the spring, um, it was, well, for my youngest, uh, his was actually the most involved as far as interacting with his teachers and activities. And his school, he goes to a, a special school uh, for kids with autism, and um, they, they were great. Now, you know, of course, it's not the same experience. Uh, you know, he's at home where he's distracted by the things that he enjoys, um, his toys and, uh, you know, his iPad and, and that sort of thing. But we did still have a lot of daily school type activities. Now we had to be doing the teaching, um, which gave me a new appreciation for what his teachers, uh, how they interact with him and what they can get out of him gave me new appreciation for, for that. Um, but my older kids completely sort of disengaged. Um, one in this school year would have been a 10th grader and the other one was an eighth grader and they're both great students, but they just couldn't get very motivated. Um, and the district was those, my kids are in the same district where I teach and it was just a mess. There's a lot of kids in our district that are um, sort of low economic and strata or whatever and they they were very reluctant to make anything mandatory because 
They were, you know, kids that didn't have technology, kids that didn't have internet access, uh, kids that weren't getting the supports, the legally mandated supports they're supposed to get, whether it's um, for non-English speakers or for uh, special needs or whatever. So my district was terrified of getting sued. So, um, so nothing was mandatory. And um, so my kids, you know, I tried as hard as I could to get them to do stuff, but, you know, I got to do my own stuff as a teacher at home, uh, which was difficult. And, you know, having to be a part, uh, an educator for my, my youngest. Um, and I just didn't have the time or the energy to be on top of my teenagers, getting them to do their work. And they just weren't motivated. It was, it was like a lot of people around the country. It was, uh, it was a difficult experience and they definitely were not getting the, uh, the education that they should have been getting. Um, now that being said, uh, they were already strong students. And um, so uh, what am I trying to say here? Um, I don't think that, I think that they'll rebound fine once they get back into a regular education setting because they, I think that they will work hard and, and I don't think that they will lose any ground but I do worry a lot about the students who are not natural learners, the ones that maybe don't have the, uh, the supports at home, um, even though I just said I didn't provide much, much support, but um, uh, I worry a lot about where things are going with what's gonna happen in the fall. I don't think that there's, a, that there's gonna be any good answers. It's just a bunch of different ways that school districts are going to go about it. And, and they're all going to have bad results. Um, you're either going to end up putting everybody back into schools, trying to do it the normal way, and then just having um, most likely so many cases, so many people testing positive, and then, and then that will be a disaster. Or you'll have everybody at home um, and getting a similar experience like we saw in the spring where kids just aren't getting out. Uh, they're not getting the, the um, education, educational experience uh, through distance learning that they should be getting. They're not college students. You know, they're, they're elementary, they're middle school, they're high school students. There's a reason that we do all what we do in a classroom. And, um, and yeah, I just, I think it's, call me a pessimist, but I just think it's going to be uh, a train wreck no matter what. Uh, My buddy, he's a high school teacher in Las Vegas and he's trying to do the same thing where, I mean, they can help with their kids and his wife's a professor at a community college there. So they're great at home for their kids to learn. But like you said, everyone in Las Vegas doesn't have internet. So you can't just make everyone learn online. Right. So you have a lot of optional stuff or stuff they can go get at the end of the week or the beginning of the week and work on. And you don't have to guarantee to turn it in by the end of the week, but it's helpful if you're good, if you're a motivated student or if you even have parents to get you going, it helps that way. But if you don't have that support system around you, um, yeah, you're going to be left behind. If you don't have the technology, uh, your parents probably working or maybe out of work um, are, and they're just, they're not engaged in teaching you at home or that kind of, I mean, it's very, your pessimism is, is dead on point. I don't think it's just normal. Um, I work at a university. Uh, I 
kind of want to post a picture online. I took a picture of a classroom and they put tape on the chairs you can sit in and they turn a 50 room classroom into about 15, well, probably less than that, uh, 10. And I'm like, we're relying at a college level on college students to be disciplined when you don't have it. And I never had it. Uh, I don't know how I'd react to this kind of situation in my 20s. Um, but I'm like, bars and house parties in Laramie are going to just end this thing real quickly. Uh, we're going to the week right before, the weekend right before Thanksgiving. And then everything's online after that. Uh, buddy of mine, we, a couple of us work at the university. I'm calling October 1st. He's saying the 15th. Uh, that we are back completely online again. Uh, I wish, I wish, yeah, I want to be optimistic about the approach. There is no surefire way this is going to work. Um, too many variables, as we all know. Um, and then there's too many dissenters that are like, that don't think this is a thing. And so they're going to, they don't care what they do. Oh, oh, I'm not going to wear a mask. Now I'm going to go hang out with 100 people at a bar. And right. infect the whole university. Cool. Sounds good. You know, a parent of one of your students, same thing, could go that could go south that way. Yeah. Affects your students. I mean, yeah. It's not gonna take much because I mean, let's let's even ignore how dangerous it might be or how um you know whether young people will be affected. Let's just forget all of that because if somebody gets if somebody tests positive then they're going to have to remove them from school. And then how many, you know, how long, two weeks, whatever. And then how many degrees of separation do you go? Is every kid that they were exposed to, um, are they going to have to come out? Um, and cause that's going to be at a high school level where they're changing classes. That's going to be a lot of kids. And if you go, you know, what about me? I'm a teacher. Uh, am I going to have to be out for two weeks if that was my student and are all of my students? If you go just two degrees of separation there, uh, you're going to take one kid would take out like 300 people. Um, and, you know, my school has almost 2000. If you include faculty, we got like 2000 people in the school and, uh, you know, seven or eight people test positive. It could wipe everybody out. I just don't see how it's possible. The only way it would be possible is if they completely ignored um, any, you know, uh, so that kid tested positive. Hey, he's fine. He's not sick. Leave him in. Uh, and then, you know, people start dying. Uh, so it's just, there's no, it's just not going to work. This is not, it's not going to work. They're trying, you know, our district I think is going to go towards some sort of hybrid where, you know, I'm in every day and then, but you know, I have eight students, uh, you know, we have 30%, 40% capacity, whatever you were talking about how, yeah. what your classroom, my classroom has 30 people. 30 seats and um even with the three foot distancing i could it would probably be eight people so um it's going to be and and, and there's just so i would not want to be one of the people who's trying to figure out how to how to make a schedule work um and as far as distance learning goes we we sort of kind of went around uh what i do for a living but you know i, I teach video production uh, to high school students. And I can't do that through distance learning. They need to be in the classroom with a camera. They need to be, um, they need to have the technology and they can't send every kid 
they can't send a Chromebook home with Adobe Premiere. Doesn't support. You know, they would need a higher end computer, um, and you know, they they need equipment. You just can't do it. You can't teach shop. Um, you know, w- without having kids with with the tools, you can't teach power mechanics. And you know, there's so many classes. And what I really worry about is that they're going to look at classes like that and say, you know what, let's, uh, let's just focus on math, English, science, social studies, Spanish, you know, classes that we can do distance learning and let's just furlough all those people. And to be honest, that's not a bad idea. It sucks for me if I were to suddenly not be working, but I just don't see how I can teach or any of those other classes I mentioned. I don't see how the kids can actually learn anything uh, at home um, for, for classes like that. So that's just another example of how this is going to fail. You're going to have to pull out all theory and rule of thirds and video, and you're going to have to be like, go watch these programs. And then that's going to be all over in about in four weeks. And yeah. you run out of material. You need hands-on stuff especially yeah. in the video world. But yeah, because I worked at home uh, initially, uh, I think four days a week. And I, I support technology. We do classrooms and stuff, but we had everybody off campus. And so we weren't building new classrooms or anything like that. And at the time I was off, it was very like, oh, you could get it through touch or someone coughed on a, you know, a seat you could get it by touching that seat and that's kind of gone away it's more it's all the aerial stuff now and so that's good so i don't feel as, like i'd walk around on campus being like i can't touch anything or anything like that so uh it was uh an interesting way to work and next thing i know i'm at home taking all these online classes on how to build a classroom and i was just like okay this is going to run out pretty soon and now I'm back on campus. My building's so locked down. Like <laughs> I see like a, our janitor, our custodian, that's about it in a day. Um, and I, a couple other people that work for me that there we have offices, doors all shut. That's the only place you can have your mask off. Otherwise, if you're walking on campus outside in a building, mask on, which I don't mind. Walking across campus when there's nobody but me, I feel kind of weird with my mask on but I don't want the mask police coming after me. So I'm like, all right, whatever. You know, this is all setting us up for fall when we have hundreds of people trying to do this. And right. by then I, I'm like, hopefully I can put in a plan because I have diabetes and everything that I can retreat back home. Cause I don't trust any college kid uh, to do what's asked of them. I've seen the printouts and the testing and I'll be tested so many times too. And I just, it's, good pie in the sky stuff but all it takes is that one and then you got your degrees of separation where you're like oh i was in that room with that person i was at that store great now do i need to stay home and so it's a very it's it's interesting and we need to be you know part of you is like yes we need society back going but at what cost right for everybody and a big part of me is like, hey, look what Canada's doing. They're kicking out $2,000 a month and they're staying stay home and everybody's masking up and they're going to get on top of it quicker than us. And I was like, you can print more money. You just can't print more people. And yeah. I, in a town like Laramie, luckily we don't have any deaths right now. But 
we're about to push over 100 cases, which isn't much where other people may be. But for us, I probably can know those 100 people. And so after, when then it's 200 people and you're just like, well, now there's going to be deaths. Yeah, we'll miss those people in our, in our communities. And everybody's missing those people in their communities. And I don't think it's hit people hard enough to be like, oh, we're going to miss a huge chunk of our society if we don't like get a better grasp on this if we don't stop with the this is a conspiracy kind of talk or just get all get on the same page and forcing us to go back into situations that worked prior to it like schools and stuff is just asking us to extend it even further and i'm glad i don't have to figure out this kind of stuff because people ask me those questions all the time and all i say is i just got to figure out the technology and I've been working in distance learning and video work for 17 years now. And so it's easy. And I know it's difficult to translate a class you teach in front of 30 people sometimes to video. Um, but it's not impossible, especially at a college level. Um, it is definitely those lab classes where you do need your hands on things. That's a hard part. I don't know how you get around that or you bring them into campus one day a week for it. It's limited. Maybe the lab is every day of the week, but five people at a time. Right. Um, I don't know, and but it, I still think our bars screw it up. <laughs> and still, if you try that, you know, it's still going to be, somebody's going to test positive, you know, no matter how, no matter how, whether, the, no matter where they got it, you know, somebody's going to test positive and uh, no matter how safe you are. And again, it's just going to be that domino effect. They could have caught it at Walmart. But if they test positive in the school, even if nobody actually has transmitted it in the school, um, which is unlikely, but even if that were the case, it's still going to, the dominoes are going to fall. So, um, you know, I know that, that people can learn online. I got a master's degree online completely, but I was 42 years old, you know, I mean, uh, and I was driven. Um, I wasn't nine. You know, I wasn't 16. I'm actually more worried about my 16-year-old than I am my younger ones. Um, when I was 16, I mean, I would have been blowing stuff off. There's no way without somebody looking over my shoulder. And if I'm at home trying to be a teacher at home, and, you know, I already talked about what, it was, what it's like for my son with autism, having to be his teacher, and then trying to teach my students. My 16-year-old could easily fly under the radar. Yeah, Dad, I, you know, I did everything I needed to, whatever. Uh, and so I know it's possible, but it's just not going to be the same experience for high school kids, for middle school kids, for elementary kids. It's not going to be the same experience as it would be if they were – in, in class, but like you were saying, you know, the, the cost is, it's too great. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, my mom is just finishing up going through chemo. Her immune system is wrecked. Uh, and I can sit here and say, oh, well, you know, they need to learn, the kids need to learn. Uh, my kid isn't gonna be, uh, he's not gonna pass the AP test if he's not in class. And my kids aren't, my students aren't gonna, they need to have their hands on the camera. And then I turn around and my mom tests positive and dies because I went to work, you know, that I can't live with that. So I don't, you know, that's another thing that, that people that I'm going to have to face as a, as an educator, if they come back and say, okay, you have to go into the classroom and be around people. I got to make that decision. What do I do? You know, am I going to have to not be around my mom, help out? You know, my mom needs help. 
uh, or am I going to say to my bosses, I quit? You know, I mean, that's not really feasible. So, you know, there's so many, every single possible scenario you can come up with for what schools are going to do has a thousand. Yeah, but what about this? But what about that? What about subs? You know, if you're making $75 a day to come in and you're probably 60 years old and retired, you're really going to, I think maybe you're going to take the year off. Uh, so it, getting subs for teachers that are going to be out for two weeks because they're quarantined is an absolute, and I could sit here and go on for yeah. hours of all of the ways that this is uh, going to be a train wreck, but you know, well, maybe we'll lighten the mood a little bit here. We're both uh, big sports fans. Uh, yeah. I get the giant question beyond the university of Wyoming is why am I going to have football? And I go, we could, but we're not going to play anybody because uh, our opponents are in Colorado, Las Vegas, uh, California. Um, I don't know if it's safe to travel those places with that group of people, like that big of a group of people. Um, one, you know, we maybe have it, them in a bubble here, but going places, no. And having them come here either is a big risk too, bringing their whole mess with them. So I was like, we could probably play a Montana or South Dakota if they had schools. I, I, I mean, they do, but I was like, I just have a hard time. And a lot of universities are going online and like, well, that means no sports because we're fully, fully online. And they say we're going to lose 10 million if we don't have uh, football at our stadium. And I was just like, really? I don't think we had enough fans. For, I mean, when we're good, we have hunting season. And it kind of drives the fans. We don't have – we already social distance at games because we just don't have the fans to do it. Like, I mean, <laughs> to fill the place by midseason. Hunting season, especially if we suck. Hunting season, I mean, it's cold weather. Like, it would be fine. I was like, I'd be more apt to going to a game in November where there's, you know, a 1,000 fans than the beginning of the season when there's, like, 8,000, 10,000 fans. Because uh, I know I could get away from them all and be in my mask. It's going to keep my face warm during these cold winters in Wyoming. That's another bright side. But, if you're talking million dollars that that Wyoming would lose, yeah. And what's Ohio? Yeah. You know, what's the uh, University of Florida going to lose? I mean, they're nuts down there, so they'll probably just stay uh, stay open. But we, I mean, we've seen already that uh, I I think three or four FCS conferences have uh have shut down you know they've, they've already said they're not going to play when one of the power fives shut when they say they're not doing it I mean, can you imagine if the sec said that they're not going to play football the state of alabama they were going to burn that state to the ground if they don't have football because they don't have anything else down there sorry people from alabama if you're <laughs> people that are listening but the, the football is their life so uh you know it's going to be First of all, I don't know, billion, it could be in the billions. Uh, it's definitely in the hundreds of millions of dollars that these conferences are going to lose. And don't get me started on uh, the, uh, the, the scam that is um, college basketball and football not paying their athletes. But anyway, oh, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. it's going to be a big deal if, uh, if they don't play. Um, and I don't know, you probably know better than, than me. If the schools are online – um, does that mean for sure that they couldn't have football? I think, I don't know if that's a hard rule. Um, 
that's definitely a rule for us. I've seen it. I've heard it a lot here at the university. So I'm assuming it's a bigger deal um, because you don't have those athletes in the town. Like we wouldn't, wouldn't need them in Laramie. They would need to be at home, wherever their home is. I mean, if it is truly Laramie, but like, it's not a big thing. Just, are you going to be in Laramie just for sports? Now we're getting into the whole student athlete. I, I do believe they should get paid and all that stuff. Well, I was like, how about, this is my only solution to that one. It was um, set up like an escrow account and money they make each year they get. And if they graduate, they get a bigger bonus. But each year they put money in that escrow account that the NCAA makes, the bowl games makes. And these guys get paid at the end of their career. They make it all, all four years and graduate and do all what's asked of them as a student. Bigger bonus, great. They go NFL, well, they're getting paid and they get their whatever much money in the year three. But the bigger bonus is to get them to graduate. And so I think there's a bigger, uh, I mean, the stipend's not big enough. I live with football players in college and stuff. It's not, they're not getting what they deserve in this thing. We're paying for your education. I'm like, yeah, but they're making so much money. And so, especially right. at big institutions, I was like, they, you deserve a cut. And so why not give it to them at the end? They're still not a paid athlete. They're done. But now they got a chunk of change at the end of school or, you know, if they got hurt, you know, and they didn't right. finish school, at least they got some money for their pain and stuff. That's just my idea. And some athletes I've talked to are like, yeah, it's a good idea. I'm like, no. Yeah, your idea is much more realistic than my, uh, I, I want to tear the whole system down and rebuild it because uh, there's really almost no actual connection between college athletics and uh, and education. It's it's a farm system that just happens to be based at um, in, at cities with uh, with colleges, uh, at least for basketball and football. So no, if I were ever emperor of the world, I would uh, I would make all of the colleges. Um, uh, basically turning it, turn it into minor, what minor league baseball is just a farm system where the, uh, the Washington football team uh, is their, their triple a team is the university of Maryland. And, you know, you work it all the way down. They draft kids out of high school, like baseball players. They, they, uh, you know, they send them off to the different uh, universities and, uh, you know, it becomes this big farm system and, and they get paid right away. And uh, if they want to spend the money to go, you know, to enroll in classes, yeah, whatever. So that has 0% chance of ever happening, but uh, unless I do become emperor, but uh, I don't see that happening either. Yeah, I, mean, I guess it's been around the system long enough, the university system and being around, I've been like, well, maybe we can come up with some sort of middle ground here. Uh, but yeah, after watching like Last Chance You on Netflix, I was like, yep, pay them all. We don't need sports in college. It was by the farm system. Like some people are just not students. It's plain and simple. Mm. And, but they're great athletes. And so why are we jamming them up? making them do stuff that they're just not going to be successful at when they can get right to it and right. play the sports and stuff. So I understand it. Not a lot of people should go to universities. I'm very much like trade schools and all that. Even though I work at one, I'm like, Hey, not everyone's meant to come and get an art history degree, which you shouldn't do all the time. If you really like working on cars, go do that. Get an right. upper, go to trade school, do that. Um, if you find like, less yeah. money, you spend less time you're in school. 
uh, and making, you know, a lot better chance of getting a job that will pay well. Yeah, I'm all about trade schools. And yeah. it's, it's a different, you know, it's a different world than it was when we were graduating high school uh, in the 90s. And, and, and it was a, a four year degree was different back then than what it is now. True. It's more expensive now and it's less valuable uh, when it comes to getting employed. So, yeah, I think trade schools is definitely a good route for kids. But, okay, now sports are starting. You got baseball. Have you been watching the baseball without fans? It weirded me out for a little bit. Uh, it's been, uh, yeah, a couple of games. Yeah, I watched, I've watched some already. I watched the ones where they had the actual cardboard people in the stand. Yeah, and Dodger watched, State. Yeah, and then I watched Yankees. And I was like, oh, this is just weird. Can't, like, it, I can't maintain my focus. Half the time I'd stare at people behind home plate. Right. Stupid things. So, or if I, especially Yankee games, I'd be like, do I know them? And so <laughs> uh, it's weird to watch. Maybe I'll get used to it. I've been watching a lot of UFC. So Wait, just, oh, back to the baseball real quick. Yeah. Did, you see, did you see any of the shots where they've got the digitally inserted crowd? Like no. in the – Bleach. Oh, you got to see that. They'll hit a ball to the outfield and, and there's a crowd there and they're moving. It's not just like the cardboard cutouts. There's a crowd and they even showed the shot in Wrigley Field where they were doing the wave and the, the camera's panning and everything. So it's pretty remarkable that they can do that, but it's really weird because it only works from one camera because they'll cut to another angle. This, the uh, bleachers are empty and then they'll go to that, that one camera that's, uh, that's set up to, to, to do it. It's totally weird. And then you got the crowd noise that's that's being piped in. And there's somebody's job to change the crowd reaction so that when the person strikes out, they go to the oh crowd. And when they hit the home run, they go to the ah crowd. So um, it's just a another weird aspect of sports in 2020. I thought uh, interesting. You could totally do this. You'd have to have somebody watching along, but you could put i thought about this because like i watched ufc but you could put like um macbooks or computer screens up in the crowds of someone's face and they could be watching like we are here watching right. ufc but you need somebody to control in case they start doing you know getting naked and all that weird stuff that people <laughs> the bomb the the video conferencing bombs i would run into i've heard about that i have to address address now in security i'm like oh come on <laughs> I was like, first of all, don't give your uh, meeting ID out to everybody. There, let's start with that one. But I was like, you could totally do that with sports, just for the time being, and that, you know, people could pay extra to actually sit there and watch a game through their TV and have that experience, or through their computer and have that experience, and their reaction shows up and everything. Yeah. But you would need a monitor to to make sure that everybody is on the up and up, and everything like that. So, but I was like, it'd be clever. I like that. Yeah. Hey, we got the technology to do it. Hopefully we don't have to do it for very much longer, but in the meantime, why not? You know, if we're going to do digital crowds and we're going to do pump in noise. Let's put in people's and the fans in the stadiums, but they don't actually have to be there for the time being. And, and well, maybe if a baseball hits one of those things, that'd be weird, but you could put nets around them. I don't know. They could figure out that aspect, but that's my idea for it. Hopefully somebody picks it up and I'll be like, we thought of that on a podcast. Damn it. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, when this started, it was March 12th. And the only reason I remember that is because uh, we shut down, the school district shut down on Friday the 13th was our last day, March 13th. Oh, and I remember it was Wednesday was when the president, uh, Wednesday the 11th would have been when the president, 
you know, came on and, you know, said air travel was shut down, whatever. Uh, the NBA shut down that night. And then, uh, and then the next day, uh, the other, you know, the XFL and then college basketball said they were going to have March Madness without fans. And then it was over that two-day period where all the leaks started crashing. And uh, can you imagine if it had been a month earlier and it would have been a week before the Super Bowl? I mean, can you imagine the chaos if they would have said no one could come to the Super Bowl or they couldn't play or what? I mean, the Super Bowl. That, that uh, would have been – I mean, they canceled March Madness, which obviously is one of the biggest sporting events, but the Super Bowl is, you know, one of the biggest events. It is probably the biggest event, uh, you know, in our country, definitely. But anyway, that would have been insane. And, you know, now as we get closer to the NFL season, you know, the NFL is such a big moneymaker and is such a part of, you know, the fabric of our society. Baseball thinks they are, but they're not. Football is. And, uh, you know, so – It'll be interesting to see what do the what do the governors say uh, about what can happen in their states over the over the coming month. You know, school obviously is going to be be a big deal, but you know, the NFL um, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money on the line. But that's the key, money. Uh, and I, I bring this up with college, and it doesn't quite work with the um, with high school students. But I like we need to incentivize our college students. I'm like, if you can make it, if we can make it through the whole semester without having to shut down, or if you can make it without bringing in COVID, we'll give you a discount on your tuition next semester. Like we got to incentivize like good behavior, not just do this for the better, the betterment of people. Like NFL, there's money involved. Mm -hmm. Even though I thought like the NBA, I'm like, how are they going to keep all these players in the bubble? Million dollar, like make millions and they're 20 year olds. Like, right. Uh, was- that'll last a little bit, but I was just like, but money's involved. And so if you can, you know, make sure that you push that button a little more, like people kind of fall in line, even though NBA is already breaking their bubble down there a few times. Yeah. Ago. There was one guy that was photographed at a um, <clears throat> gentleman's club, you know, and that was, they, they just got in their bubble. And so uh, I, I, I was like, Oh my God, how do you, it's easy for me. My 40s stay home. I've done it all already, I feel like. So I'm like, hey, it's a good time out. Work on myself for a little bit. But if you had millions in my 20s, it'd be hard to keep me in that place. Yeah, it's true. And so, So, go ahead. I was just, I mean, going what you were saying, incentivizing uh, good behavior, it's just, it sounds good, but. People are always going to, they're always going to say, okay, I'll take the incentive and yeah, I'll be on good behavior. Yeah. I'll wear my mask. I'll stay in the bubble, whatever. And, but will it, you know, is it even feasible? Um, I mean, they got it. Like you said, money drives everything. So, um, you know, when you're talking big money, like uh, division one basketball and football and, uh, and the NFL, um, it's a lot of money and it's going to really put the pressure on um, not quarantining, not wearing masks, letting people back into the stadium, trying to do social distancing to sell those tickets, to keep those television contracts going. And, uh, you know, it's really going to put colleges in a position of, are they focusing on education and safety of the students or are they keeping those hundreds of million dollars coming in for basketball and for football. 
it's going to, you know, it's going to really put a spotlight on them to, to make that decision. And like I said before, if a power five conference shuts down football in the fall, it is going to have huge ramifications. There was the meme that around. It's like, if you said, told the sec that there would be no football, like right now, unless they masked up, everyone in the South would have a mask on. That's and a good I'm like, I, I, it is to a point, but there's not a lot of, there's some people that just aren't football fans in the South, weirdly enough, that <laughs> still buy into, I don't need to wear a mask. Like this is against my personal freedom. So I'm like, it's a good in theory. I think the South is very all about the SEC and I get that. But yeah, if you told them all, you got to do this. You need Nick Saban out there going, all right, if we don't do this, you guys can't watch Crimson Tide. Can't watch people beat us. Can't watch us beat other people. Nothing. I think we'd get a good portion of the South with it. Would happen, but not enough, I don't think. But who knows? I mean, I wish you need strong leadership like that. And it's starting. I've seen some. Um, I watched last week tonight with John Oliver, and there's some actors out there. And I, I, I post this on people's Facebook page, like Paul Rudd talking about, I know you're scared. And like, they're giving these personal messages like, hey, maybe you should look that up before you repost. Maybe you should wear a mat. Like, there's good stuff right. out there that people in power are starting to put out, which is good. Maybe they, we needed to do that in March, um, not now and wait around and say, like, they have the influence. And I just don't know if it's going to work well enough right now to get everybody uh, to get this thing done quicker than we like. I, I mean, people, there's a yeah. large chunk of the population who have dug their heels in publicly through social media on masks are bad. Uh, it's abuse of you know freedom, all that. And they, it doesn't matter what kind of information gets put in there. They have locked into that mentality. And, and I, I, we talked about the effects of social media. Um, you know, people our age, we lived before the internet and social media. Um, and I don't know if younger people can really grasp it, but social media has put people in a position where they tell the world what they think and no one wants to change their mind about anything. It doesn't matter what kind of new information they get. Changing your mind is a, is a sign of weakness to so many people. Uh, when really it's just called living and growing and whatever. But, you know, so many people on social media, because it's such a hot topic, they, um, it would, I don't think it would matter if they took football away because these people have already declared part of that, their identity is being against masks, against uh, any sort of government um, interference with businesses, opening, closing, whatever. So, um, yeah, I just I don't see any of those people changing their minds, no matter what. Disinformation, like we're lucky. I always say we grew up half our lives not on the internet. A good chunk, twenty years or so before it became like social media became a huge thing, and so I was like, "Yep, half my stupid pictures not posted on the internet. Half the things <laughs> I did not posted. So fantastic." Um, and I actually can sit down with my friends of all different, you know, races, creeds, colors, organizations, and have legitimate discussions. But when it comes to social media, there's no such thing. And it gives microphones to people that don't deserve them. Um, that don't need, it's great you have an opinion, but it doesn't really help this whole discussion um, with experts. And I was like, I'm not an expert in a lot of things. So I listen to the experts. 
I've learned that. That's a, at least one thing I learned from college is how to, especially like how to sort through like a, a news story, like if it's just opinion versus news and science. And they basically work the same way. The more sources you have, the more times you do an experiment, it works the same way. The more sources you have about a story, most likely true. Sources, examples, science. And people just don't understand that. They read a story and it, they like, oh, that's everything I agree with. Well, that's some guy's opinion. They don't have any cited, thing, cited information in it. It's just them talking or just laying their thoughts out loud. It looks professional. It's on some blog. It's laid right. out like a news story, but it's not. And they don't understand. They don't have the tools to get through that. And so they're like, well, I agree with these people. So I'm going to dig in and I'm going to not do this kind of, I don't, I don't believe in science and that's the worst. I'm just like, just because right. you don't believe in it doesn't mean it's not true. Like right. that's, I, I, there's lots of science I don't want to agree with. I would not like to have diabetes, but the science says I do and I got to do things to save my life. But some people are like, whatever, damn science. And I'm like, okay, it's a hard way to live. Well, and, I mean, it, yeah. just the, the press secretary uh, the other day said that kids need to be back in school and science can't get in the way of that. You know, here we go. The, the White House, you know, yeah. I mean, nothing shocks me any, anymore. And, and by now, uh, in 2020, nothing really shocks me coming out of the white house uh and you know i really don't want to get into the sure. into that that whole thing but uh yeah nothing at all is surprising uh, as far as the just the wow factor um you, you told me five years ago some of the things that uh, that a president might do i would have said that's impossible that could never happen and you know here it is now it's just uh now that's just tuesday you know yeah so, Yes. Uh, it, it is amazing how we got here and well because we didn't listen to the experts we didn't listen to science we didn't like, like that's why like science be damned all right you want to educate your kids by the same people that are telling you this is not scientifically safe to do right. but you trust them to keep teaching because i'm just like this is weird mixed message i was like we don't listen to the educators when it comes to education. And, and I think we got to this point in the White House because we kind of destroyed education along the way. And people got less smart and are like, a reality show guy will do us best. And mm. I don't know. Well, living in New York, I've hated Donald Trump since living there. <laughs> I, it's just because I was like, I hated what he, his example of rich was. Like there were other rich people in New York that were cool, but his gold, I don't know, Trumpness just was gross. And I never really liked him then and holds true the day. And I can't believe how we got here. And I'm like, um, and we we're just worse off in these situations where you yeah, had press secretaries saying stuff and can't trust science. <sighs> it's yeah. I'm sorry. We just went down that road and I don't mean to, cause you can easily, Go down that I call it the echo chamber rabbit hole with people are in the same you know lockstep with you about the president of the United States, and hopefully we can look back in five years. I'll be like, oh, we got through the dark ages, we had our modern dark ages as such, and we have an enlightenment. You know, I and my buddy that teaches in Vegas is like, some stuff we're gonna come out the other side 
we're probably going to have better grasp on technology as, it, as instructors. We're probably going to have a better grasp on a lot of things, how to get things done remotely. And I was like, yes, there's some, maybe some benefits that are going to come out the other end, but we got to work through some stupidity right now. And maybe it's, hopefully it's going to end soon. The darkness has got to give to the Grateful Dead, man. <laughs> and, no point. That's yeah. crazy day. Sometimes I just uh, sort of catch myself. I stop and I go, wait a second. Donald Trump is president of the United States. Like it still just catches me off guard every now and then, even after uh, you know, almost four years. It's, it's wild, you know. When we lived in New York, you would have said, hey, Donald Trump's going to be president one day. People would have laughed, you know. And people were laughing while he, you know, that that was absurd when he was running. And now here it is. And, and absurd, I think, is the, uh, is the best way to describe what has happened over the past few years. Rage Against Machine took over uh, Wall Street and they did uh, Sleep Now in the Fire video. There's a guy holding a sign that says Trump for president in that video. Uh. I saw it the <laughs> other day and I was like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. Like, people were about this back then? That was 99. Right. Oh, holy wow. We are just as been, <laughs> My entry into politics uh, was uh, my first election was 92. So Ross Perot in 92 oh, yeah. and in 96. And I'm like, yeah, we need somebody, a businessman who's not a politician. And, you know, I, I didn't really know a lot about politics, but that sounded, you know, that appealed to me. And, and that always appealed to me because I don't like politicians. But man, whew, talk about being careful what you wish for. I voted for Perot twice. Me too. I was the ideal. I called myself the idealistic, you know, 20 year old. Like you just said, like I was not trusting. My parents are big old Democrats and everything. And I was like, I don't know. We live in Republican Wyoming, very red, red state. And I was like, ah, I don't know about either of these two. I want a guy yeah. that's not bought and sold. I did not quite understand where he got all his money from oil. I didn't understand the ramifications of that, but I liked his message and stuff. Yeah. And now we have a private. Well, I think he would have been a lot more better president than Donald Trump had been, has been. So <laughs> that's not a very high. Yeah, it's not. It's not at all. It's sad. It's sad. It. I find my, and then I, every once in a while, I find myself like using chopped up English or like bigly and stuff like that, and I'm like, oh, I'm being destroyed <laughs> from the inside from this guy, and like. When I left New York, I left news. And I didn't turn on news legitimately for um, wow, the last four years, 13 years. Probably didn't watch, pay attention much at all. I was like, yeah, I know how it works. I'm out. I'm good. I'm doing other things with my life. Don't need to watch news. And then they vote this guy in. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to watch the news again just to pay attention. And I did until COVID hit. And I was like, okay. You got it. I can't anymore. I just turned off the news. I tell people to shut it off all the time. I was like, just work on yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't pay attention to that. But don't be shocked when you're like, Donald Trump did what? Yeah, don't be shocked when you hear that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, all right, I'm going to wrap this up. Um, we've gone quite a bit. We had a little technical difficulty in the middle. And usually my last question is, how would we meet? But we kind of covered that one in the middle of uh, we met at News 12 in Long Island, that is. And uh, but I want to thank you for uh, giving me your time and being on my show. Yeah, this was fun. This was cool. This is, uh, you know, 
touching base again. It's been a long time, you know, probably the last time that we talked regularly was back uh, playing fantasy football, uh, you know, after I moved to Delaware. So, you know, it's probably been 15 years since we, since we had more than a couple of text messages, you know, so this is great. This is good catching up with you, man. We'll have to get up in another league again. We'll, we'll figure that off on offline. Friends, I am still looking for theme music for my show or intro music, maybe an intro and then the play-in music like I just had right there with the bass stuff I use. It's free bass stuff. I had one guy contact me and wanted to charge me 150 bucks for an intro. And well, the, the stuff he gave me, the samples he gave me, his style was just too dark and too techno-y for this show. But he does good work. And but just like not for this show, so I'm still looking. Hit me up on social media, DJ Rude Entertainment, because you guys might know me as a DJ. Uh, you can private message me, Justin Flask Rude. You can also hit me up on Instagram, L Rude Arena. You can hit me up on Snapchat, RudeZilla68. I have Twitter if you want to DM me. My Twitter handle is at Jammin, J A M M I N underscore DJ underscore Rude. So if you know somebody, if you're that artist or you know an artist that can just provide a sample of their music or just maybe just a bass line, a guitar line, a DJ scratching line, a vocal line I'll even take. But I want some music for this show and I will promote the hell out of you. If you're that artist, I'll promote the hell out of your artist friends as well. So let me know. Hit me up social media or if you have my digits, you can text me and we'll play your music on this show. Now, it was a great interview with Jeff. We got off on a lot of different subjects. We're kind of on the same wavelength when it comes to a lot of things, political issues and such, and uh, masking up, of course. And he's an educator, so I'm, I'm really uh, worried about how we're going to educate our students in the upcoming school year, how we're going to get them there, if they can be in schools. But that's probably a whole nother podcast, and I'm not trying to be too serious right now. I want to tell you about one thing we didn't talk about during the interview. So back at News 12, we had photo ID badges that got us in the building. And they were available online on some database we had. And eventually, I don't know how it started, but we eventually had a wall of celebrity lookalikes, like people that worked at News 12 versus their celebrity lookalike. Uh, I was a wrestler, Johnny Grunge, if you know who he is, yes, at that time, when I was 300 and some pounds living in New York, uh, I did look a lot like Johnny Grunge, a wrestler. He has passed since. Um, but I no longer am that, that uh, way that much, so I'd probably have to pick out a uh, new picture for my celebrity lookalike. I'm trying to remember if Jeff was up there. I can't remember who he was exactly. But one of our photogs um, had a celebrity lookalike of Steve Gutenberg. And Steve Gutenberg was on our morning show and wandered into our back editing bay and it's very centrally located not everyone comes back there uh it's not an easy place to go into and he just wandered in and he got a kick out of the celebrity lookalikes he wasn't didn't seem like he was offended or anything he's like yeah that's a pretty good representation of me and so that was uh interesting to actually have one of the celebrities pop into our edit bay and see and see our celebrity lookalike wall i think there's a picture jeff tagged with me on facebook 
or one of us and I'm in the background, my celebrity picture is, and the, you'll see the list of celebrity pictures. So if you know one of us, you can check out that picture, I think, on Facebook. All right. On to the next podcast.